the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. Dave has five patents to his name, has published four novels, two children's books, and six nonfiction books to include his perennial bestseller, On Killing, which has now sold over half a million copies. He is also a New York Times bestselling co-author with Glenn Beck. His books are required or recommended reading in all four branches of the United States Armed Forces and in federal and local law enforcement academies nationwide. He was a U.S. Army Ranger, a paratrooper, and a former West Point psychology professor. In this episode, we discuss why is violence in Western society misreported. We also explore the many facets of self-reliance, as well as some examples of self-reliance in action. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? Psychologists call it the uh, internal locus of control. Identify all the things you can't control and let go of them. And, and that's what self-reliance is about. You know, it, it, all the things in this world you can't control, let go of them. You can't count on them, you can't depend on them. The only thing in the world you can control is yourself. And, uh, and self-sufficiency, and, and it comes back to self, which is really back to EQ, emotional quotient. Colonel Grossman, that's a great start. And as I said to you before we jumped on the call, I really appreciate your time, as I know you are an extremely busy man. Yeah, please, Dave. Dave here. But yes, and uh, uh, if you want to expand this or you want to do another one later, uh, I love doing these. And we could do a couple of them if you want to. One or, the, one or two of the areas we touch on, if you think it's worthy of more time, uh, I'd love to do that. Uh, I, I love doing these podcasts, and I try to begin every podcast by kind of complimenting the host and the people listening, because they're seeking deeper knowledge. And we've truly got, got, we've got citizen journalism for the first time really in human history. You don't have to control the printing press, you don't have to control the magazine or the newspaper or the TV station. Uh, we, we now can, we can now disseminate information, get beyond the barriers that always existed. And the people who put these podcasts together and the people who seek these podcasts represent something very, very good in our society and, and, are, and are worthy of respect and are right up front, kind of hold them all up. Uh, and this, this process, this revolution in which we're regaining control of, of, the, of the flow of information through these, uh, these podcasts. And, and, and a century from now, people can look back at these podcasts and say, what were they saying? What were they doing? What were they thinking? What did they look like? And, uh, and these, will be, these will be used in, in the centuries to come. It, it, it's very much like writing a book, except with greater depth of knowledge and information in, in this compact little nugget of information. 
Well, I think also what you're suggesting there is the people that are seeking out deeper knowledge are really speaking to this idea of self-reliance, you know, not just relying on just one source of information, but actually using critical thinking and going, let me look at all the opposing viewpoints here so that I can make up my own mind. And when I make up my own mind, I know that I made it for myself. So let's go back and discuss the idea of self-reliance and let's go a little bit deeper. I mean, you, you explain what it is from a psychological base and what it is in the literature, but what do you think it is for you? And when you think of self-reliance, let's ex even expand that and say, is, is there self-reliance today? Or do you feel that that is somehow being degraded in some respect? Yeah, the, the concept of self-reliance has uh, really been torn apart by modern civilization. That we talk about the idea of an internal locus of control. The only thing in the universe I can control is myself. And, and if I give way to bitterness or cynicism or complacency or denial, that's the one thing in the world I can control. And I've given the world a victory of my own hand, I will not give them that victory. Now, as long as we understand we're all human, they make a time we all might need some help. That's not a bad attitude to have. I control my destiny, I control my fate, I refuse to be a victim. So there's only one thing in the universe you can control. It's yourself right now. Let go of everything else. It's useful to turn it over to higher power. Uh, there's a reason why, why faith is one of the pillars of resiliency. My book, uh, Bulletproof Marriage, 90 Day Devotional, Sheepdog and Spouse, uh, you can leverage if you're wired that way towards uh, faith. My most recent book came out just two months ago on spiritual combat. Uh, and if you're, if you're focused in that direction, faith can be valuable because it gives you something to hand these things over to. Uh, and just give them to higher power. Focus on the one thing you can control. And, that's that, and I love your format of protecting, surviving, and thriving. But it comes back to self. What are the things I can do? Let go of, don't, don't spend energy screaming and ranting about what's at the national level. You can't do anything about it. Don't spend energy talking about what other people are doing. It's all about you. And in the end, that comes to having the tools and seeking the training. But the first step is understanding how desperately bad the situation is. And my book, Assassination Generation, uh, outlines these things we're gonna talk about very quickly here. Now, I was invited to the White House at the Parkland School Massacre part of the President's Roundtable on Violent Video Games. As we went to the White House last August, as part of the Vice President to, to brief the Vice President, gave the President a copy, gave the Vice President a copy. And the first thing to understand is that medical technology is holding down the murdering. If we had World War II level medical technology in Iraq today, the murder rate would be 10 times what it is. And the same thing's true in our streets. If we had Vietnam level medical technology in Afghanistan, would have at least four times many dead American troops, and the same thing is true in our streets. Is that not intuitively obvious? Boom! Medical technology is holding down the murder rate. The number of dead people over any period of time completely misrepresent the situation. So, you know what? We've got one good data point. A good, solid UMass Harvard study told us if we had 1970s technology, the murder rate would be three to four times what it is. So just in 30 years, we cut the murder rate to a third or a quarter of what it would otherwise be with medical technology. In the last decade, we may have cut the murder rate in half with tourniquets. One medical expert says tourniquets alone in America have probably cut the murder rate in half. I, I, I present to cops, rather, hundreds and thousands, how many old cops carry a tourniquet? <clears throat> how many carried one 10 years ago? <clears throat> Nobody carried a tourniquet 10 years ago. Cop slaps on a tourniquet, 
saves a life, he's prevented a murder. Now, half a million cops on duty in America on any given day, between the three shifts, incredibly violent times. If just 20 to 30 cops a day slapped on a tourniquet, saved a life, we've cut the murder rate in half. Not counting EMS and all the other life-saving things that come out of two decades of war. So is this not intuitively obvious? Like, don't we immediately grasp it? I've presented over 100 universities and colleges. I'm the guest criminal justice and criminology professor. And, you know, killology is not about teaching people to kill. And criminology is not about teaching people to be criminals. It's about understanding the variables that, that control it in, in our society. And I'm based on a book on killing, half a million copies sold worldwide, translated eight languages, Marine Corps commandants required reading. But this, this dynamic, that if we talk about money, we talk about inflation-adjusted dollars. Anytime we talk about history, we talk about money, we say in today's dollars, that would be, we're lying if we don't do that. When we look at the murder rate, we're lying if we don't allow for medical technology. So we could use the aggravated assault rate. Problem is, it's too easy to fudge those figures. Where do we draw the line between ag assault and simple assault? It's a big gray area. It's so easy to fudge that data. So what we need, we have, we have inflation-adjusted dollars. What we need to have is medically-adjusted murders. Why don't we have that? Why isn't that common knowledge? Because then the situation would look much, much worse than it is. So Dave, that's my question. Is it just the fact that there are more people on the planet, so there's more violence? Or is it, in fact, that society is actually getting more violent overall? Yes. What we're looking at is per capita violent crime and per capita murder rates. So these are allowing for population, if you will. But take a look now, this is America. Now I present cops, I, I present American Sheriff's Association, Florida Sheriff's, I show this to them. But take a look at this, this is the number of people murdered in America. Now this is not per capita, but the raw number of people murdered. And in the year 2006, 17,000 Americans murdered. 2008, uh, by 2008, we got 16,000. 2009, 15,000. 2010, 14,000. 14,000. And then in 2015, 2016, homicides in America exploded like nothing we have ever seen. I, I had 400 sheriffs in my office, in my class. I said, Sheriff, how many all heard about this? Not one. But if this had been the stock market, we hear about it every day. If it's inflation rates or interest rates, we hear about it every day. How in the hell could this be happening? And by the way, Canada has almost exactly the same blip. And, and we'll tell you about other nations in a minute. Well, why in the hell is this not the news? Because it doesn't meet the narrative. The narrative is there is no boogeyman. You don't need a gun. You would just hurt yourself. You can count on society to keep you safe. You can count on your politicians to keep you safe. We know what's best for you. Stay in your home. Don't spread the disease. Wear a mask all the time. Listen to uncle. And listen to Big Brother, we know what's best for you. And the narrative is there is no Batman. So a simple concept that we should all grasp is the fact that the number of dead people underrepresent the situation. But folks, it is worldwide. Go to Wikipedia and, and go to Wikipedia and look up homicide rates worldwide. And then look at and click the rate, click it again to get the most violent nations on top. And when we look at this, what you're looking at is El Salvador, Honduras, Venezuela, Jamaica, Jamaica. You could not pay me enough money to take my family on vacation to Jamaica. It's if you were to Jamaica, you stay in the resort. It's a howling war zone outside that resort. 
But wait, wait, where's Mexico on this list? Mexico is at war with the cartels. And Mexico's war with the cartels has more loss of life than Iraq and Afghanistan put together. And, 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 and what do we got? There's South Africa at 11. We got Brazil at 13. Bahamas, yeah. We got Guatemala, Colombia. Well, well, there's the top 20. We still ain't got Mexico. Mexico's number 21. Iraq's number 52. I would rather take my family on vacation to Iraq than Mexico. And this is new. A lot of people in America, we remember a time when we popped across the border to Juarez, Tijuana, did a little shopping, got a nice meal. Ain't nobody popping over the border, Juarez and Tijuana no more. This is not right. This is new. This is fundamentally new. And, and by the way, one thing all these nations have in common, with the exception of South Africa and Brazil, which have limited gun rights, with the exception of South Africa and Brazil, which have limited gun rights, every one of these nations have unarmed citizens. People talk about, oh, yeah, we, we just had those gun laws. Well, how's that working out for Mexico? How are those gun laws working out for Mexico? What makes it think it's going to work over here? What about European nations? Now, here's another piece of the equation. Interpol began to collect the data. Remember, a better measure is a rate in which people are trying to kill people. Problem is, it's too easy to fudge that data. But within each nation, comparing the increase in violence as measured by the serious assault rate is the best measure we currently have. Interpol began, began to collect that data in 1977. Per capita violent crime, as reported each nation, and Interpol, it, it, uh, it, it, uh, it doubled, tripled, quadrupled, quintupled in nation after nation, was my data stop in 03. I don't update my slide. They stopped reporting the data. After 2003, Interpol stopped reporting the data because the nation did not want people to know. So Dave, what, what, is, you know, what is the reason? Like, what would you say is the reason? Why is this happening? Why is there seems to be an increase in violence? You know, it comes back to my first book on killing. It came out in 1995. We found out in World War II, most of the troops wouldn't pull the trigger. Cruiser weapons would fire. If a leader stood over your shoulder and demanded you'd fire, left to your own devices, the individual riflemen, only about 15 to 20% would actually pull the trigger. They'd be brave, they'd run ammo, they'd do whatever you want, but at the moment of truth, they wouldn't pull the trigger. And we found out it was a training flaw. We taught them to shoot bullseyes. We have no known case any bullseyes ever attacking our troops. If you've been in the US Armed Forces since the Korean War, I guarantee you never once shot a bullseye. Man-shaped silhouette pops you, feel of you, hit the target, target drops, stimulus response, stimulus response. Like a pilot in a flight simulator, like a kid in a fire drill, modern training makes killing a conditioned response. And oh, by the way, the video games are doing the exact same thing to our children. No, they're not all on psychotropic drugs. No, there's not some evil new gun out there. What is the one new factor? Every one of these nations. Violent visual imagery inflicted upon children. And understand how desperately bad it is, and it is worldwide. Think like a scientist, think like a detective. What is the new factor in every one of these nations? And no, they're not on psychotropic drugs, that's, that's a myth. Uh, Dr. Jim uh, McGee, uh, uh, FBI consultant, definitive study of 19 school killers. None of them were on Ritalin, One, two, maybe three were on antidepressants. In one case, God himself couldn't get access to the medical records. How do people even claim to know them when the FBI couldn't get access to medical records in a couple of cases? 
So the new factor worldwide, the thing to understand, violent visual imagery inflicted upon children, their body treats it like it's real. So let's talk about the attacks on police across America right now. These, these attacks on police, where did this stuff come from? When I was a kid, my hero was, uh, was, was, was 1M12 and Sergeant Friday, just the facts, man, and Gunsmoke, Marshall Dillon, I had the lunchbox baby. But what you gotta understand is we got a generation that grew up on Breaking Bad and Sons of Anarchy and Sopranos. There is no problem with adults watching those shows. But when children watch those shows, it's real to them. When we've been maybe one cop movie in 30 years, didn't have a bad cop in there somewhere. And, and, and what that bad cop did, he did to that child. It, it's real to them. And violent visual imagery inflicted upon children, the body goes into fight or flight mode. We have the brain scan data. And I tell people, again, the whole gun business is a distraction. There is no evil new gun out there. You know, M1 carbine, World War II, over six million were manufactured in World War II. Semi-automatic, 20, 30 round magazine, they, 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 they were junk. They were military surplus. They were scrapping them down for metal. The, the guns are not new. There is no evil new gun out there. So what's the new factor? We know what it is, but we've been building up this for a long time. Why did it break loose in America in 2015, 16, 17, that data I showed you? Well, the FBI guys who put this data together, they call it the Ferguson effect. They say we're getting a sense of anger in our criminals. Like somehow the cop's a bad guy for enforcing the law. And maybe I lost it. I'm 64 years old, burnout old geezer. Maybe I lost it. I always thought if you're a criminal, you live your life in fear. You're a criminal. You should be paranoid. The world really is out to get you. But now we tell the criminals, you're the good guys. And the cops are the bad guys. And then the government tells people to disobey the law. Sanctuary citizens, sanctuary states. Morally, maybe they're doing the right thing. But very bad things happen when the government tells you to disobey the law. Here's a statement from old Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis. Crime is contagious. If the government becomes a lawbreaker, or if the government tells you to disobey the law, it breeds contempt for law. It invites every man to become a law unto himself and invites anarchy. That's what you're talking about. So Dave, if what you're saying is correct, what are we in for next? So I'll tell you what's coming next. Around the world, we started seeing children commit these, these mass murders in their schools. Finland's had three multiple homicides by juveniles at school. The all-time record multiple homicide by a juvenile in the school was in Germany. The, the Mexico's had two, Brazil's had two. Around the world, children committing these terrible crimes. And, 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 and get a hold of my book, On Killing, came out in 1995, three years for Jonesboro, four years for Columbine. I predict these mass murders are coming. Then I said they're coming to the colleges. And by the way, just two years ago, Russia had their own Virginia Tech. Russia had their own mass murder. We got 20 people killed and, and more than 50 wounded in a college in Russia. But the average American never even heard about that. I tell them, go online, do a search for it. Russia College Master. Why wasn't that the news? Oh, because it's only happened in America because of our guns, see? And if we were just a totalitarian nation like Russia, and if we could confiscate all guns, we'd make the bad man go away. No, you can't. Because I think, I, think, I think fundamentally what you're saying here is that ultimately the bottom line is this. It's not about the guns, as you know. It's not about any weapon for that, for that fact. It's, it's a state of mind. It's a state of attitude. 
And that's really what's pushing that forward. And, and if you don't feel that there's any problem in committing any, you know, committing violence, and you don't feel that there's a problem doing it in a way that's going to take other people's personal sovereignty away, then, you know, what do we do about that? Because we seem to have a lot of people like that. And that seems to be what we're fighting. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so big on this idea of being self-reliant and taking ownership of your own life and making sure that you are at least doing what you can to secure your own future in, in, you know, in light of the fact that the world seems to be on fire. Absolutely. And, and another angle of that is that you just cannot trust what's being said in the media. Because I'm America's number one law enforcement trainer, when they attack cops, they attack me. And look at some of the stuff on me. They never mention my books. They, they don't mention that. And, and, and you look at the, this, these things about me, you say, well, why don't they mention Grossman's book? Why don't they mention this? Why don't they mention that? These peer-reviewed journal entries. Because they don't want to tell the truth. And you cannot rely on the media anymore. But I'll give you one more angle on this. The one nation that has succeeded in confiscating all guns is China. So these crimes aren't happening. Wrong. What we're going to see next is daycare massacres. Belgium had a daycare massacre in 2009. I get this, Belgium, 2009. On the first anniversary of the death of the actor who played the Joker, with orange hair and a butcher knife. They said, knocks on the front door of a daycare center in Belgium and quotes a line from the movie. I have one question. That was the Joker's line when he crashed Harvey Dent's party in the movie. I have one question. Where's Harvey Dent? His children will do, and the Joker murders Harvey Dent's children. Now, anybody connect the dots here? First anniversary of the death of the actor who played the Joker, orange hair and a butcher knife, and, and uh, uh, knocks on the front door of a daycare center and quotes a line from the movie. He murders one daycare worker, one survived, that's why we know what he said, and hacks and stabs 12 little babies in the crib. All the gun laws on planet Earth are no good when he comes in here to daycare with a butcher knife. So China's seen repeated daycare massacres, axes, hatchets, knives, hammers, the kindergartens and daycares, got the hammer hammering the little skulls into the daycare one by one. And so they've turned their daycares and their elementary schools into fortresses, no problem. They go to the middle school and commit mass murders. So finally, one of them was reported on. Here it is, AP wire. Eight students killed and two injured in Chinese elementary school attack. Uh, an attacker kills eight students, injures two others. How? Did he shoot him? Did he poison him? He run them over the vehicle? They don't say, they don't want to say. He did it with a knife. They censored that. They don't want to say it. And then they did say, they said, in April of last year, nine were killed, one of the dozen injured outside of middle school. How? They don't want to say it. Did he shoot him? They run him over? He did it with a knife. And they don't want to say that. They censored it. And, and we're, going to see, we're going to see school bus massacres. We had an immigrant bus driver in Italy two years ago hijack a bus with 51 kids on board. Soaked the bus with gas and torched it off with 51 kids on board. Six months after this incident, I trained FDNY, Fire Department New York. I had the chief of Fire Department New York, Counterterrorism Department, and they had never heard of this incident. That's very interesting. The Italians were brilliant. Best I can tell, one of the kids called on his cell phone, said he soaked the bus with gas, he says we're all going to die. They had roadblock and fire trucks everywhere. They hammered this thing with fire trucks, they busted windows, they yanked kids out of windows, not a single kid died. Some of them badly burned, not a single kid died. On an American bus, the windows are much higher. The cops have to park your vehicle beside the bus, get on the roof, break windows and yank kids out of the roof. But why in the hell was this not in the news? 
A can of gas and a knife is all they needed to potentially kill a busload of children. They censored it. FDNY didn't even hear about it. And so understand that worldwide, when the terrorists come to attack, one of the things we got to worry about is school massacres. In Afghanistan, in one year alone, 613 attacks on schools, their own kids in their own schools, in their own nation, 600 times a year. Pakistan, an entire school wiped out. The following day, every school in Pakistan was shut. Dave, everything you've covered to this point is, to say the least, is disheartening. And I suppose anybody listening to this is thinking to themselves, what should they be doing? What can we actually do about this? Based on what you're saying, and if what you're saying is correct, what should we do as individuals? So here's the point, first and foremost. The first step in resiliency, that's what I teach. The first step in self-reliance is motivation. To know how desperately the world needs what you have to give. To know how desperately bad the situation is and how terribly important it is for you to prepare, to protect and survive and thrive. And that comes back to training. So coming back to this ideal of self-reliance, Dave, I was wondering if you could share with us a story, either a personal story or of someone else that you know that you feel epitomizes self-reliance in action. So I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. It's Officer Greg Stevens. May of 2015, and draw the Prophet Muhammad Art Festival outside of Dallas, Texas. In the eyes of Islam, to draw the Prophet is a horrible crime. And, and they're afraid to draw bad guys in a pit. Two art critics from Arizona showed up with AK-47s and body armor. Now here's the layout that day. Officer Greg Stevens was doing an off-duty job to provide security at this event. The silver car there is his vehicle, but he wasn't in his vehicle. He didn't have his head in his cell phone. He's standing there doing his job by that blue dot right there. A black car without a state plates comes screeching up and both doors pop open. Officer Greg Stevens is already in position one, got a good firm grip on his gun. Now, in military and law enforcement, we do a lot of drills with guns already out or the guns in the holster, which I've done a lot of drills where you begin with a good grip on the gun. I'll show you video after video where people began the incident with a good grip on the gun. So boom, he's in position one, good grip on the gun as the doors pop open. The driver and the passenger both roll out with rifles and body armor. Now the driver shoots at unarmed security guard who's running away. You cannot call unarmed people security. You call them run like hell when the man with the gun shows up. In America, there's legal liability associated with that word security. Don't, don't give somebody the job and then fail to give them the tools to do the job. So he did distract the driver for a few minutes while the passenger rolls out and opens fire on Officer Greg Stevens. Greg Stevens is standing 40 feet away. He said, I saw the right foot come out. I saw the barrel of that rifle come around. I drew and fired from 40 feet away. Officer Greg Stevens says, I cannot tell you who fired first. I'll tell you who fired best. From 40 feet away, he puts a volley of four shots into the passenger who goes down. Meanwhile, the driver has turned and engaged Officer Greg Stevens, moving towards him and firing his rifle. Over 30 rounds of rifle fire be fired at Greg Stevens. They won't hit once. He's hitting virtually every shot fired. He engages the driver and puts a volley of four in the driver from his pistol, puts the driver down. Now he's going for kind of low center of mass. He's just shooting center of mass low, and the shots below the body armor are what's taking the bad guys down. He re-engages, very unique circumstance in America. This car could be a bomb that could go off any time. 
They have load-bearing vests and, and, and uh, backpacks who could be bombs. As long as they're still twitching, they're still a legitimate threat. Greg Stevens re-engages the passengers grabbing at his throat. Thought he might be going for a detonator. Turns out he had a shoulder ulcer. Maybe he's going for a shoulder. Didn't matter. Because Greg puts a volley of four in him. Now he's got a Glock 45 caliber. He's got 14 rounds. He's fired four, four, and four. He's got two rounds left and he knows it. The driver is still twitching. He said, city's paying for the ammo. Two more rounds of the driver, drop the mag, speed change, check 360. Who would not want to shake that man's hand? Now here's the key. Officer Greg Stevens was not a SWAT dog. He was not a competitive shooter. He'd been a cop for 37 years. He never once fired his weapon in life and death event. But once a month, his department had an open range. And for 37 years, once a month, on duty, off duty, when the range was open, he was there. For 37 years, once a month, Officer Greg Stevens on the range. For 37 years, Officer Greg Stevens made a daily, a monthly deposit in his savings account. In May of 2015, he made a major withdrawal. I asked everybody, how's your savings account look? Are you pissing your time away? Are you pissing your time away? Are you preparing for your moment of truth? We got a motto that runs through my uh, sci-fi fiction series. It's uh, uh, slightly pure, but we, we tell people, you gotta have a hobby, you gotta have a life. But it's a very pure and beautiful thing when your hobby reinforces your survival skills. Competitive shooting, uh, 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 cowboy action shooting, airsoft and paintball. Can't buy ammo, can't afford ammo, don't whine to me. Airsoft and paintball, hunting. I believe hunting is the single best way to prepare for combat for many reasons. Martial arts, enormously valuable set of skills you could develop with your loved ones. If, if your hobby doesn't have survival skills, at least for Lord's sake, let your hobby have cardio commands, running, swimming, basketball, softball, tennis. So we got a motto, it's, a, it's, a, it, it, it's slightly crude, it simply says, piss on golf, yeah? Piss on golf, real, real, Americans go to the range. There's no, there's no survival skill fund on the golf course. There's no cardio man's fund on the golf course. For us, the golf course is a willful and deliberate misuse of a perfectly good rifle range. And we're not impressed. Hit a golf ball 200 yards. Hit a golf ball from 200 yards. We're impressed. But so Dave, what also adds to that though, and I think it's important to, to talk about this, is that it is important and I agree, you know, you have to de develop those self-reliant skills, however you can, right? Be it that you're learning martial arts, be it that you, you know, if you are able to access weapons like firearms that you're training with the firearm and so on. But we also have to speak to the fact of this has to be driven from or coming out of virtuous action, right? I mean, because we also don't want to end up becoming the very thing that we are fighting against. Oh, well said, absolutely. And that comes with the sheep, the wolf, and the sheepdog model. It's uh, extract out of my book, On Combat. On Combat, by the way, last I heard, issued in the DA Academy, issued in the Marshall Academy, Marine Corps Commandant's required reading. And the whole sheep, the wolf, the sheepdog thing came out of that. And, and it's all about being not being a sheep and not being a wolf. Developing the propensity for violence, but using it to be the protector for virtuous, honorable. And the model that I use is the paladin. You know, in, in, in America, anywhere in the world, if you're a politician or you're wealthy, you have armed security. But the peasants and the peons will never have that, that right. In America, I am my family's secret service. 
And if my family deserves armed protection every bit as much as the president does. And so the idea of the nobility, the knights of old, the paladin, we are the nobility. We are on the same level as everyone else. And if we choose to be that paladin, that protector, to, to, to bear the tools and to try to make our part of the world a safer and better place, and we strive for that model of the sheepdog, the paladin, the protector, and just understand how desperately bad the world needs what you have to give, and don't be part of the problem, be part of the solution. Virtuous, honorable warriors dedicated to protecting everything that's right and decent and to be informed. So Dave, building off this idea of being informed, one of the things that I think is crucial is that people need to understand what actually happens to themselves, their body, their internal state when faced with a violent encounter. And I think a lot of people have no idea how that's going to show up on the day. So maybe you can speak a little bit to that. Look at what happens to somebody at a life and death event. Dr. Alexis Hartwell's book, uh, uh, Deadly Force Encounter, just re-released, page 55 of On Combat, 85% the shots got muted. You talk to hunters, they'll tell you, they shoot a deer, they don't hear the shot, the ears don't ring. Now the shutout is in the nerve, the ear is still being hammered. Where here in protection when you hunt, you'll be a deaf old beast like me, it's a pain in the butt. But hunters will tell you, they don't hear the shot. And in combat, people will tell you, the shots are very muted and your ears don't ring. Now how in the hell could we've had 500 years of gunpowder combat, five stinking centuries of gunpowder combat, and just not get around to letting people know, oh by the way, the shots are about to get muted. And so understand that these, these are revolutionary dynamics that we desperately need to know. And again, the most important book anybody could read to prepare for combat is my book on combat. But look, 18% had intensified sounds. And some have both. Here's what happens. If you cop a surprise in an ambush, boom, 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 shots overwhelm and start shooting back, the shots get muted. The body will focus intensely on the sense it needs most for survival. You start shooting back, the eyes dial in, the ears dial down, and the shots get muted. Tunnel vision. 80% were conscious of tunnel vision. Now, all these numbers, in a minute, you'll see half had memory gaps. One out of five had memory distortion, just flat remember things that didn't happen. So we know the data we're getting may be incomplete. At least 80% were conscious of tunnel vision. People talk about looking through a toilet paper tube. And some people talk about that looking through a soda straw. But here's what we know. Lateral movement can take you right off the radar screen. If the bad guy's got tunnel vision, you can almost bet on it. Rapid lateral movement, a quick sidestep, can take you right off the radar screen. So look at what else is going on here. We've got autopilot. You do not rise to the challenge. You sink to the level of your training. Whatever you're trained to do, it's coming out no more, no less. We've got slow motion time. I have had hundreds of people, hundreds, tell me they can see the bullet in combat, and I believe them. It's like airsoft or paintball, where it's slowing off your track with your eyes, and it absolutely blows people's minds. So all those changes you just described are really important to understand and acknowledge. But there's also this aspect of when people find themselves in a highly charged environment or they've had to face a threat to their lives and they've had to deal with it, afterwards there's repercussions also on a psychological level. And it wouldn't be uncommon for people to have memory gaps or memory distortions. So maybe you can speak a little bit about that. It's really important. 51%, just about half, had memory gaps, blackouts. And 
while one out of five had memory distortions, just flat remembering things that did not happen. It was early in the war. I was training our, one of our Tier 1 Spec Ops units. They had just come back from the first combat tour. One of our Tier 1 Spec Ops medics came up to me and said, why did the wounded hallucinate so much? Just remember things that did not happen, hallucinations. So think of those two things, blackouts, memory gaps, and memory distortions, hallucinations. In the state of Texas, it has become the law the cop has the right to see every video before they make their statement. In Texas, it's a law. Anywhere else, it's common sense. The cop, the world's going to hold the cop accountable for that video. It's only reasonable that they should see the video before they make the statement. You've got memory gaps, got memory distortions. You put that on paper, and it'll stop you from, from pursuing justice. It will stop the bad guy from getting held to accountability. And, and so what we tell citizens, and I speak at the NRA every year, and tell them, we want you to survive physically, spiritually, psychologically, and legally. Trained seasoned cops will not make a full statement. Trained seasoned cops, half of them have memory gaps, one out of five have memory distortions. How much more so could it happen to us in a life and death situation? I think that's, I think that's really important is that it's, it's crucial that people understand what's going to change physiologically for themselves in a threat situation. And what I'm always interested is you know the one thing that just baffles my mind all the time is that especially in my world of martial arts defensive tactics however you want to define it is that people are teaching things that are so complex that there is absolutely no way that you're ever going to access that in a real threat situation but yet it's still prevalent and people seek it out and they want to be john wick but the fact of the matter is fights are messy unpredictable chaotic and are gritty and are never going to look anything like hollywood under the express, you lose fine motor control, near vision goes out, color vision goes out, fine motor control goes out. So that's, uh, that's a dynamic that, 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 that Ronnie, you cannot emphasize enough. Simplicity is the, is the necessity. And it comes back to all of your tools got to be used when you're injured, when you're cold, when you're bloody, when you're muddy, racking the slide, hanging on to your knife. These are the fundamentals that, that fall apart. So Dave, as we come to the end of this interview, I was hoping you can share some final words of inspiration with the listeners. I always use a photograph of a young police officer coming down from the World Trade Center on 9-11. Her face is beet red. That's, uh, that's vasodilation. His face is bone white. On the other side of the head, there's a pretty bad cut. He'd been burned. He's... Uh, uh, He's taken a blow that left cheekbone, second trip down for the World Trade Center. But what we know about them is he's experienced a vasoconstriction. Don't worry so much about a guy that's red with rage. Watch out for the one that's white with rage. And what we know about him is there's no rational thought of that man's head. As the blood drains from the face, the blood drains from the forebrain, there's no rational thought. And yet he's going to drop out that pregnant lady. And I talk about him in much more detail in my book on spiritual combat if you're interested. He's going to drop off that pregnant lady. He's going to back up that building a third time. The building will fall. His name is Christopher Amoroso. And Officer Christopher Amoroso will not come home to his wife and baby tonight. He'll never come home again. So why does one person go towards their death again and again while thousands are running away? And the answer is love. In nature, the one place where the natural instinct of self-preservation 
is canceled out over and over again as a mama critter among many different species of mama critter who will die for one thing, for her babies. In combat, men will fight and die for each other. You put together a band of strangers, people don't know each other, don't care about each other, put them in combat, people are dying, and it's dark, they're out of there. Audie Murphy, most decorated American soldier of World War II, was asked one time why he did it. His answer was very simple. They were killing my friends. And the answer is love. Audie Murphy loved his fellow soldiers. A mama critter loves her babies more than life itself. And Christopher Amoroso loved his fellow citizens, men and women trapped in those towers, more than life itself. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.